Thank you, Edith. Well, how do you measure if something's good? So if you say to yourself, oh, that was good, oh, by what purpose do you measure that? Is it because something is helpful that makes it good? Or because something is useful that it makes it good? Or is it because something is enjoyable that it makes it good? Or is it because something is entertaining that it makes it good? What is, what is it that makes something good? I wonder if you think in your mind, the last thing that you said, gee, that was good, what basis did you make that decision on? As we come to the Bible, we can offer, often ask ourselves the same question, what is good? This part of the Bible doesn't appear to be good in any way. It's not going to help me, it's not going to be useful to me, it's not going to be entertaining to me, it's not going to be enjoyable to me or any other thing. In fact, I'm not even sure why it's there. At first glance, we look at this passage of the Bible that Edith's just read for us and we ask ourselves the question, why is it in the book of Judges? It's nowhere near as entertaining as the stories of Ehud or Jael or Gideon or even Abimelech and Jephthah, as horrible people as they were. So where is this message going today? How are we going to be interested or helped or enjoy or inspired or uplifted by this? And why would God tell us such a thing? Well, this morning I want to look together not only at these five verses at the start of chapter 10, but also the last eight verses of chapter 12. We're going to look at five judges, people you've probably never heard of before. And we're going to see why God has put this in our Bibles and what possible benefit it might be for us to hear from God's Word in this way today. Just a reminder, if you've got questions, please ask them. I'm all keen to hear those later on. Uh, uh, Slido.com and the hashtag is HBSP for Q&A a bit later on. Let me pray and we'll dive into these verses together. Heavenly Father, we are greatly thankful that you have spoken to us in your Word. And we ask now that you would give us your grace Please, to understand these obscure verses and that you would help us to understand why they're actually in the Bible. Please help us not only to understand them, but to see your heart behind them and why you would speak these things to us. We ask for your help today by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Ella prayed, it's nice to be in a change of season, isn't it? But one of the things that I love about summer in particular is a ham and salad sandwich. Love a ham and salad sandwich on a hot day uh, and you need to get it just right don't you it's got to have ham lettuce tomato cucumber mayonnaise mustard and uh, probably a bit of beetroot as well anything to add Ch- coriander oh I don't mind that idea that's good you either love or you hate that stuff don't you coriander that's true cheese no cheese no on the salad sandwich I'm not a fan of the cheese you know what though if we're to have a debate about this ham and salad sandwich a bit later on one thing we're not really all that worried about is the bread not the star of the show, not the hero of the story, is it? The bread? It's just sort of sitting there doing its thing. It's not the attention grabber like the filler of the sandwich is. And theologically this morning we've got a bit of a sandwich in front of us. In chapters 10, 11 and 12 we met a man named Jephthah last week. He is the hero if you like. He is the one that is getting all the attention. He's the filling of the sandwich. He's the one who is really interesting to us. And on either side of this sandwich, at the beginning of chapter 10 and the end of chapter 12, we've got two pieces of boring white bread just sitting there doing nothing. 
And we say, what are these people here for? Notice again the passage that uh, Edith read for us in chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. Two judges here are mentioned. Tola, who saved Israel and judged for 23 years and then he died. That's all we know. And Jer, in verses 3 to 5, who was a Gileadite, had 30 sons and judged for 22 years. And then if you come with me over in your Bible to chapter 12, verse 8, we meet Ibzan. Ibzan had 30 sons and 30 daughters and judged Israel for seven years. Then he also died. Then there was, in verses 11 and 12, Elon, not Elon Musk. He judged for 10 years. That's all we know about him. And Abdon, in verses 13 to 15, he, was, he had a large family and judged Israel for eight years. That's it. That's all we know. Have you ever heard of any of these guys? Tola, Jer, Ibsen, Elon, Abdon. You probably haven't heard of them before and they don't make your heroes of the Bible list in your own mind. So what are we to make of all of this? How do we even make sense of it? Well, the first thing we need to stop and pause and think today is why this is even in the Bible. See, if you went to certain churches today, there would be inspiring messages that would help us in the week ahead. That would give us so much inspiration to go out and do this stuff in the world and it would be exciting and, and that would be good, but the passages that would be selected would be selected at random. They would be selected by what would fit the topic. But we here in our church, we recognise what God says in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, that all Scripture is God-breathed. That means these sections of Scripture are breathed out for God, by God and are useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, here's the problem of the pick-and-choose mentality. We'll never, ever look at a passage like this, ever. But when we work our way through the Bible, chapter and verse... We cannot help but get to a part of the Bible like this. And we're reminded once again that all scripture is God-breathed. And sometimes we need to go back a step. We need to go back a step and re-understand that the Bible is not so much a book as it is a library. A library of books that we read with the story of the big picture of God's salvation of the world. And so though we see the Bible divided up into chapter and verse, we need to understand and remember that it was not designed to be read that way. It wasn't necessarily designed to be broken up into pithy little sayings that we can put on cushions and coffee mugs, as good and as helpful as that is. Sometimes we need to take a step back and see what God is saying in the big picture in order to understand what he's saying in the small details. She'll hate that I'm saying this, but my wife Kel's a great artist. She's self-taught and she does her own art and it's great. And uh, occasionally, I'm not very artistic as you probably know, so uh, I'm not of much help at all. But occasionally she'll come to me and say, what do you think about this? Because as she's been working so closely on the piece of art for a period of time, she finds that it's hard to step back and see what the big picture actually looks like. She needs my help to come out and say, does it look like it's supposed to look? And again, I don't know if I'm of any help, but I try my best and I sound interested. That's how it works. (laughs) But we need to do the same with the Bible. 
We need to look not only at the word, but the sentence, and the sentence in the verse, and the verse in the paragraph, and the paragraph in the chapter, and the chapter in the section, and the section in the book, and the book in the Bible. That's how we should operate. So as we step back this morning, we need to see five things about these passages in chapter 10 and chapter 12. First of all, number one, the Bible is not about us. This is not easy, is it? Because we want the Bible to be about us. We want to know what are the six steps to good mental health, the three steps to be good with my children. We want to be inspired to know how to work hard in the workplace. But the Bible is, first of all, about God. See, this has been the danger of the book of Judges all the way along. The danger is that the big personalities take over our mind and take over our attention. And they make us think about the heroes being the the, the people that we've already seen. The Ehuds and the Jails and the Gideons and the Jephthahs. But the writer wants to remind us that it's about God. God is the one who comes to his people to intervene, to bring salvation, to deliver his people. And here we see five largely unknown, seemingly insignificant people. And they're here not to tell us about them, but about God. See, sometimes we can be drawn into thinking, can't we, that God is here to serve us, that God is here to save us. But it's not our story, first and foremost. It's his story. And here in Judges 10 and 12, we're told clearly God saves his people through these five insignificant people that you and I will never remember. And we're told that this is part of God's plan to save his people, to look after them and to, uh, to watch over them. And we're told that this is the case in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10 as well. Look at what it says on the screen. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Do you notice what it says in that verse there? The plan of God is to unite all things under Christ. That's the first point that God is making in this world. Gladly, God includes us in his plan by bringing us to Christ and having us know him. But the purpose of God in the world is not about us. First and foremost, it's about God. I remember this being taught, and I've I've talked about this here from the front before, but I remember a year seven girl in a youth group on a minibus on the way home from a camp where this passage was spoken on over and over again. And she said, unabashedly, she said, I've never heard anywhere, anytime that the world's not about me. Amazing, from a year seven girl. She thought the world was about her and we can fall into that trap as well. God is gracious and kind to include us in his plan, but the plan of God is first of all about him. And here we see he saves his people on five separate occasions. Secondly, these passages teach us that God saves his people from themselves. Look at chapter 10 of Judges verse 1. After Abimelech there rose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. There's some great names in that list, isn't there? But here they are. 
Now, it's a small detail, but you'll have to put your mind back to two weeks ago. Remember Abimelech? He was a tyrant, a horror. He thought he could take charge because he was the son of Gideon. And he takes over the nation of Israel and he rules over them in a horrible way for a number of years. But here we're told in chapter 10, verse 1, that God intervenes to save his people from this tyrant. After Abimelech, there rose to save Israel, Tola. The people of Israel were silly, stupid to have raised Abimelech to be their leader. And yet God, loving his people as he does, comes to save them from themselves. And often God does the same thing today. Often God works to save his people from themselves. I have a friend who is a minister. And this particular minister was called on to take a position in a church immediately after an event of sexual misconduct by a minister in a church. Now that's an unenviable task, to come in and take that position after an act of sexual misconduct. And yet, God used that man to bring about healing. God used that man to bring about a calm upon the church. God used that man to save his people from themselves. After all, those times when those bad things happen, sexual misconduct and so on, God's people can easily disintegrate. But God used that scenario to bring about healing and peace and calm, saving his people from themselves. Thirdly, this passage reminds us of the problem of providence. You see, uh, we mentioned before the sandwich and Jephthah was the, the meat in the sandwich. He's the one with all the attention right in the middle here. But as we read the Bible here in context, we notice that there's a big difference between Jephthah and the people around him. You might remember last week, the big problem for Jephthah was that he only had one daughter and that he made a rash vow that resulted in her death. And yet... You might notice in chapter 10, verse 4, the judge that immediately precedes Jephthah is Jer. He has 30 sons who, rides on, who ride on 30 donkeys. And presumably he has some daughters as well. And over in chapter 12, verse 8, the judge that immediately uh, comes after Jephthah, he has 30 sons and 30 daughters. And they're not godly. They intermarry with the nations around them. And yet, as we read the Bible in context here, we are left asking questions. Why is it that the seemingly ungodly judges of Jer and Ibsen have multiple children and the one in the middle has just one child? Why? Well, we know the sovereign God of the universe, don't we? And often we ask the question, why? Why is it today that some people are able to have kids and lots of them and some not? Why is it today that some people work very hard for no success and some people don't work very hard for lots of success? Why is it that some people have their kids end up being followers of Jesus and some do not despite their efforts to the contrary? Why is it that some people get sick and die early and others who have a terrible lifestyle manage to live for a long time? 
the answer to these questions are vexed. They're tough. And they're tough because we don't know God's personal will for our own lives or in the case of these three judges here in the Bible. We have no idea why one had 30 sons, why one had 30 sons and 30 daughters and the one in the middle had one daughter. No idea. God doesn't tell us. And he doesn't tell us in our lives either why these things are seemingly the case. Nevertheless, we can cry out to God and ask why, but we're not guaranteed for an answer. While we don't know God's personal will in our lives, we do know God's eternal will. And this is what God wants us to trust in. While we can't answer the why of day-to-day life, we can know that we stand on the side of the favour of God in the long run. Look at this passage from Romans 8 on the screen. You'll know this well, but it's a great passage. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God will not tell us every detail of our lives. But know this, every detail of your life as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is for your good. Even if it doesn't appear to be in the first case. This passage of scripture reminds us that there are no easy answers to the problem of providence. But we can rely on God's eternal sovereign will. Doing good for his people, even when they do not deserve it. Fourthly, this passage reminds us of the lasting judge. As we look in these brief sections of scripture, five judges in just a few verses, what they say is basically the same thing over and over again, but that's instructive. See, what we're told on every single occasion for each of these five judges is that they died. They died. Tola died, Jer died, Ibsen died, Elon died, Abdon died. They all died. And that's not just a, a mere detail. It's God telling us that his salvation lasts for a short time and then it's gone. And then it lasts for a short time and then it's gone. And it's easy for us to see this and forget that our saviour lives forever. See, it's easy, isn't it, in our own context and circumstances to trust in uh, leaders or ministers or even apostles. But they all die. And when they die, their ministry ceases. But the Lord Jesus is the resurrected saviour who lives forever and so he can save forever. Look at this passage from Hebrews chapter 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. As a result, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the resurrected saviour. We don't need saviour after saviour after saviour after saviour, leader after leader after leader after leader. We get peace with God because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that lasts forever. God is trying to tell us in these five simple verses that in the death of all of these judges, the peace doesn't last forever, but in Jesus, the peace does last forever. And so finally, what does this passage teach us? Well, it teaches us that God uses 
nobodies. I don't know if you've ever been travelling to one of those world-renowned sites that make you feel very small and the world feel very big. A passage like this is designed to do that, to make us feel small. And the Bible does, in its own language, make us feel small, doesn't it? It speaks of us as being dust. Can't get much smaller than that. And that's what we are. And yet, though we are dust, or if you like, specks on the ground, or ants on the ground compared to God, the Bible teaches us clearly that God uses us. He calls us by name to come and follow Him. He loves us and commissions us to be on mission with Him. These five unknowns, or as one commentator wrote this week, he he said they're also rands of the Bible. These five also rands can't be compared to Gideon and Samson, but then neither can we. And that's great news for us, because if God can use these five also rands, unimpressive, standard issue, garden variety people, then God can use us standard issue, garden variety people too. In fact, more than that, that's where God does his best work. Look at this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you are wise... According to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. If you're unimpressive, standard issue, garden variety Christian, know this, God loves you, he has called you, he knows you and he's commissioned you for a task, just like Tola, just like Jer, just like Ibsen, Elon and Abdon. Do not be discouraged. God set his love upon nobodies like you and me. So that we might serve him for his glory. See, this passage of the Bible is God-breathed. Sometimes we just need to take a step back and see what God is saying. He's showing us that the Bible is about him saving people from his compassionate love. Saving people from themselves. Showing us that in the act of providence, as hard as that is to understand, God is always at work for the good of his people. That Jesus is the lasting judge and saviour and that he would use nobodies like us for his glory. It's a great and encouraging passage to read together. And so we rejoice in the God who has spoken these words to us. Well, I wonder if you've got a question. Now now might be a good time to ask them. Let's spend 90 seconds or so just reflecting and I'm going to come back and answer a couple in just a minute.
All right. They're like nice and loud out there, aren't they? But that, that's totally fine because I said to the kids' lead ministry leaders this morning, they should get them, get a zonk, get a zonk. They should yell that out. And Hannah Lucas said to me, but they might interrupt the sermon. I said, see it as a challenge. So that's why they're doing it. You just tell them they weren't loud enough when you go out to morning tea. We didn't notice you at all. Um, the, uh, the question that says, just, one, just the one today, it's from George Harrison, um, I think. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, it says this, do you know the significance of why riding donkeys is mentioned here? Why not horses? I don't know the answer as to why not horses, but the significance of the donkeys is just simply um, to show uh, the success of the person um, so that they were rich. Uh, rich and successful, um, which is also a statement of the the, uh, the the number of children they have as well. Remember last week you saw um, the the uh, the young woman crying for her virginity on the mountains, and that was a statement of my life has not been fulfilled in that way in that culture at that time. And this would be the same thing. It's saying I, I've I've lived a long, full, and successful life. That's like an ancient way of saying that. Uh, by, by showing off the number of children they have and the number of donkeys they have. And yet, at the same time, for a Bible reader, uh, particularly in the number of children, the number of children also show, shows a sense of unfaithfulness as well, because to have that many children, obviously, uh, you can't just have one wife. That would be impossible. Uh, and so it's a symbol of saying there's a problem here going on with God's people. they they're, uh, they're, they're mixing in with the ways of the world as well. So it's a bit of a mixed picture. Um, these judges here are not perfect. These judges here are just as broken as all the judges around them, as we've seen over the last few weeks. And that's one of the details uh, that, uh, that this passage is trying to show us as well. Uh, thanks for the question. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word in all of its parts. We thank you that it's breathed out by you and profitable for us. And we thank you so much that though your plan is uh, over and above us, you have chosen to include us in your plan by sending the Lord Jesus to die for us, to give us new life and to set us free and forgive us. And so we thank you that you've chosen to not only forgive us and to bring us into your plan, but to use us in your plan as well. What a wonderful privilege. And today we stand and rejoice and thank you for this great privilege in Jesus' name. Amen.